Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast. Our goal is to help technical professionals accelerate their career progression, increase their job satisfaction, and bring you the advice we wish had been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at VJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Corty, at NetworkNerd underscore. We both work in the tech industry with backgrounds in IT operations and sales engineering. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. We also wanted to mention that our second site, graph.nerd-journey.com, is also live. That's the knowledge graph and linked notes version of our main page's show notes that we developed to make it easier to explore our episodes, guests, and topics. You're listening to episode 242. This week, it's part two of our discussion with Ken Collins. He's a principal engineer at Custom Inc. and an AWS serverless hero. If you missed part one of our discussion with Ken in episode 241, go back and give it a listen. In that discussion, we recounted Ken's mother's influence and sponsorship of technical community, even from his youth, and the role of community in Ken's career ever since. We heard the story of a young manager who became a self-taught programmer and made some of his luck, especially after a chance meeting at a Linux user group that got Ken his first job as a programmer. Ken also shared his learning processes and how his body of knowledge looks a little bit like a banyan tree. This week in part two, we're going to learn how Ken got into open source development and how he's actually adopted that as a habit. We'll then focus our discussion on the staff engineer and principal engineer roles. What exactly are those? What does it mean when we say those terms? Why would someone pursue them? What types of flexibility and how those roles are done exist? Also, how are staff and principal engineers different from managers? And we'll also hear a little bit about Ken's advocacy work as an AWS hero and how it actually wraps into the discussion of all the items above really, really well. Here we go with part two of our discussion with Ken Collins. I want to ask this question while we're talking about learning. You do a lot of learning when you develop a portfolio of work. And you mentioned when you went into that job interview, you had a decent portfolio built up. And since that time, you've contributed to a lot of open source projects. What are some of the things you see people missing in realizing that they need a portfolio of work and what should be in it? And then ways we can better communicate what's in our portfolio of work to show the impact we're making and our expertise? It's probably one I might not have a good answer for. You know, there's that, you know, sort of negative meme, I would say, where like, if your GitHub graph doesn't look like this, are you even a programmer, right? Like, uh, and that's like horrible, right? Where, you know, where I'm talking about the sort of green squares that you can see on somebody's public uh, profile, you know, and if you're working at a company, you're doing amazing things, and it's not on, in the public, then you just don't see that. I would imagine that people that are amazing engineers that are just not out there 
doing the dog and pony show uh, have amazing ways to communicate their work and maybe do it better than I ever could uh, in a way that's meaningful to them in an interview or uh, a business setting uh, when changing jobs or, or, or looking for new work and stuff like that. I just happened to find out that for me, one of the things that I'm really good at is separating core business logic and sort of core open sourceable code. So I've always ended up in a weird way working again from that sort of continental railroad perspective on the business's needs, but in a way that's very sort of abstract and sort of componentized and then the leveraging of that component with the business in a way. So I've, I've always had this amazing open source portfolio that I've just always built and it's just my default way to work. Um, that's a habit that was forced upon me. Like I didn't really have that option, right? Because when I joined this company as my first time software engineer, it was like, I just wanted to program in Rails. I just knew I wanted to program in Ruby. I just love the language so much. But that company was for the heavy truck industry, right? We did all the uh, sort of logistics and, and dealer software for Mac and Volvo and international and eventually coaches like uh, Prevost. And all that was backed by SQL Server. Right when Rails 1.2.6 came out, they just dropped the SQL Server adapter. And like what I needed to do was, is like, I still wanted to program in Ruby. I still wanted to program in Rails. And I really liked this company that I was working for. So what that meant for me to keep in and like my job is, is I had to, nobody else was doing it, right? So it's like that joke, right? If you look around for the adult in the room, you don't see it. It might be you. Counterpoint, if you look around on a public bus and you don't see the crazy person, it might be you too. You know, I looked around, there were no other people going to pick this up. So I did. Uh, and it ended up being a, a, a great career development. And I think I've just kept iterating on that naturally. But that was that specific moment that was very specific to me, that was very specific to a point in time, that was very specific to the market at that time, where it just really shaped my career. Did I answer your question, Nick? Yeah, actually, you did. Because by telling that story, that's a great job interview story, I think. I saw this need and I liked this thing. I knew I had to work with SQL. It was not going to be supported anymore. I saw a gap. Mm. I decided to figure out how to fill the gap. And because I figured out how to fill the gap, I ended up building it, which led me to this other thing and this other development of expertise in the open source area. And I was able to be a better partner and contributor to the work You know that was really at hand. Yeah, 100%. I've heard some people say, Ken, that if you have experience contributing to open source projects, that's not really, it's not really a great experience on the resume to go for a software development role. I've heard other people say, yes, it actually is. So is there a perception of that among software engineering leaders as to whether that's good, bad, relatable experience to be in the field? Well, having worked at a company that's had to grow an engineering team, you know, from something maybe less than a dozen all the way up to many severals of dozens, there is a, always a focus on being able to grow people and help them and nurture them through their career and recognizing the underlying talent. So I would say it is unusual to find a candidate or a way of working with inside of a company that places emphasis on open source. It is definitely not the rule because most of the time you're looking for soft skills, you're looking for general ways that they work well with teammates or, or reach out to people or any other sort of numerous amount of things that sort of add value as a, as a member of an organization. So I think 
for me, it's worked out really well. You know, uh, it shortcuts a lot of the interview process. Um, that's a good thing that's worked well for me, but I wouldn't say it's really needed uh, for most people. Like, again, like I was forced into open source from trauma. And then that, that trauma keeps playing out in just the way that I work because I am very social. I do like, uh, I do like sharing and I do like advocacy. And I do like, I think more so than anything, I don't think it's a right or wrong thing, but I like, I like showing my work. And then I like seeing how other people sort of critique it. And maybe it's a little bit of steel sharpened steel, but um, I do, I do very much like to learn from my mistakes and my successes at the same time. And the only way I know of doing that is, is broadly sharing it with people. <laughs> Learning in public, I think, is one of the ways that that's described. And then uh, I think, as you pointed out, having like people give you a critique. Yeah. Or sometimes it could even catch you, you know, walking down a, an inefficient path earlier on. But uh, yeah, I, I really like that idea. I, I, I guess it sparks the question, is that what kind of accelerated your programming career this this idea of becoming you know more senior taking more of a leadership role helping other people within your organization you know much less the the kind of extended community yeah and a, a lot of times that ends up moving to there's different roles or personas archetypes that principal or staff engineers have right sometimes they're utilized as problem solvers right for maybe a, a vp or a director that just needs to really technically shoot through something. Sometimes you're working in a, a capacity to where you kind of have to inspire and showcase and, and do change management around certain technologies and stuff. Um, but yeah, I think uh, either way, it's hard to to be a, a leader in an organization and not be public, right? So I think that really the open source stuff and the community engagement has helped me. I'm still continually learning to be better at it, uh, to be a better speaker, to have more empathy, to have more active listening. But yeah, I, I definitely think it's 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 helped me out. And one thing, um, a little tangential, my w wife reminds me of this all the time. I went to, I didn't even know. So I went to a school early on in my, like, I think it was like maybe kindergarten to fourth grade or something like that. I didn't even know there were grades. My wife is like an A student, like, you know, scholarships because just so wicked smart, right? Hit the A's, 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 A's. I never really knew there were grades, right? Like, I, I don't know if it was some sort of 70s Montessori thing or something like that, but like, uh, I just went in and just tried to be me every day, right? And then at some point, maybe around in sixth grade, I kind of figured out that there are these numbers that people judge you by. <laughs> I think that's carried over into my career. Every day, I just uh, try to show up and be excellent and and be amazing to myself and, and other people. And that goes all the way back, apparently, to <laughs> grade school. What is a staff engineer, you know, quick summary of what that is, what that means and why do it? Well, if I'll use the the explanation that one of our directors gave me when he first talked to me about the role is that, you know, at Custom Make, we've been growing for a long time. We're about 20 years. And I imagine this is the same at a lot of other companies. And you got different teams that need to have a level of autonomy because that's healthy. But yet also at the same time, you can't have every house in your room being decorated a different way and painted a different color, maybe with different carpet or something. You could. It's just not normally works well that way. I will say that, uh, you know, on this podcast, we're, we're sharing each other's video and I'm in a room that looks like the, uh, the dad from Beetlejuice uh, behind me. It's all wood paneling and stuff. It is, it, it is a unique room in this house. All the other walls are white and just plaster. But generally, the house is themed uh, a particular way and this room is different. You know, companies kind of need a little bit of 
strategy, right? So we, I, I like this analogy of, right, like a company can only go so far on purpose-based alignment. Sometimes you need that sort of strategic understanding of how to get there. So naturally, as you progress, you don't have to, right? You can be an excellent individual contributor and just sort of focus on individual things. But at some point in time, companies are going to need help with their technology and setting a strategic direction and understanding how you can get there. Uh, that's architecture. Uh, that's a particular archetype of a, of, of a staff engineer. They, they can be different. But I think that was the thing that sort of sold me on it. Was And it was a natural tendency of mine anyway, because I was always very interested in the why, 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 why. And you know, even when I started at Custom Inc., we were very small. Just to give you an example, so like of how different rooms were designed different ways, right? Everybody was in the same building. I was the first remote employee 10 years ago. And there's maybe two or three engineering managers and very small teams. And they didn't even really get up and walk to the next room and talk to each other about each other's work. You know, coming from an open source, like I was born in GitHub, right? Like sort of thing. You know, my GitHub user ID is 1,700 something, right? It's just, there was no pull request culture. There was nothing, right? Like you didn't ask somebody why they pushed something into main, much less you didn't talk to them even before they started that journey. (laughs) So it was a very easy sell for me to understand that at its basic level, the the engineering level that I had progressed in was sort of more around coordination uh, and vision and strategy. There's something there. We just spoke to somebody recently who mentioned that a lot of times companies do things to mimic other companies without understanding the design principles. So, you know, requiring people to to be in the office, assuming that that is going to lead to more innovation without designing the office to increase collisions between people, certainly teammates, but like across teams, like designing the workspace so that you have to collide, like maybe not having tables of four, it's only long benches, you know, in the lunchroom. So you literally have to sit next to somebody that you might not know, you know, those types of things. I I see that a lot. No, you don't. You just skip a bunch of spaces. (laughs) You just uh, turn them into bunk mates, right? Just throw everybody in cots and you're there. (laughs) Right, right. I think what you said about, you know, people being in the office, but never talking to each other just seems to miss the whole point of being together in the office. Yeah. Oh, I hadn't considered that at one time the, the office there was like at one time they were physically there, but yet they didn't talk. Right. Was that Conway's law or something like that? Right. Like I have to look that up. Like your software ends up being a representation of the business organization, right? Your software boundaries mirror that of the, the business boundaries. Of course. Like, oh, wow, this part of the program has a slightly different uh, UI. I wonder why that is. I was like, well, take a guess. Right? <laughs> it's a different business unit that's designing that. Yeah, there was something about that question that you asked of uh, going back to the office and the organizations. I remember what it, what it is. It was, um, you know, as a hero, I've got a lot of content on, you know, Lambda and architecture and some of the things that we've done, uh, sharing stories that we've done at Custom Inc., And one of the things I always tell people at the beginning of almost every tech talk is that I'm going to show you something that I've done and something in a way that we've solved a problem. But I want you to understand that the context that I'm giving you this in is very much wrapped up in something that you may not be experiencing, right? So if it looks technically interesting, if it's a neat architecture pattern, right? Don't think it's 
for you, right? Because it's it's solving our problem and our needs are very specific in where we are, right? So if I show you a way that that we've sort of engineered that we run images that we use in Kubernetes and AWS Lambda for background jobs to avoid polling, uh, because we also have a context of an active active uh, disaster recovery plan that's running in two AWS regions, uh, that's heavily influenced by a legacy Oracle database. You know the number of applications that we have, right? Like that's context that you may not have. And it's, it's always, I think, important to impose on people that like, when you see this thing, just know that it could be a bad idea, but it was maybe a good idea for us. Uh, and w- whatever context I can give people around sort of technical things is always helpful. <laughs> Which is the same advice you mentioned for people's career. Ah. Right? That just mirrored the conversation we had a little while ago where you're talking about, hey, this is what worked for me. It may not be right for you. Maybe you do need to go and get a degree in this subject or go to this boot camp because I'm self-taught or you're self-taught. It might not be the same because we come from a little bit different context and had to do the things to solve the problem situation that we were in. Which probably goes all the way back to the open source versus who you hire, right? You hire the problem solvers, you hire the thinkers, you hire the, not just, I need a Ruby person or I need a node person to fill a seat. It's the way of think. It's the thinking as the problem solving. That's very meta. I need some figure outers. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the the lack of context is the same thing as not understanding the design goal and the the things that you were working with and things that you're working towards, right? I mean, it. I I just figured it out. It was we spoke to uh, Leanne Elliott, and she and her husband have like a workplace culture podcast, and she talked about. <laughs> I guess this goes back to the physical space now, uh, ping pong tables in offices. And it was like, you know, for whatever reason, you know, companies just put a ping pong table there, but it kind of tracks back to like this one specific office that was trying to increase interactivity and ping pong was like a commonality and it drew people from multiple teams. So they were specifically trying to do this specific thing with specific people. And then it just got genericized into, I guess, you know, in order for productivity, we need a ping pong table, but it completely misses the context that you're, you know, you're saying like, Hey, you know, this worked for us because we had this specific context, right? And it might not be the right thing for you. What a dink! I was just at a ping pong bar in Seattle at the AWS Hero Summit last week. And then I learned that a lot of my friends were in startups and they know how to play ping pong pretty well. <laughs> Place was amazing. They had, you never had to pick up your own ping pong balls, right? You just grabbed another one from these buckets on the side of the table. I loved it, right? That's pretty cool. You're right, John. That's exactly what's happened. <laughs> it reached full meme status for me a couple of days ago. Too funny. I think our discussion of the the meta lesson or meta theme here is what David Epstein refers to in the book range as far transfer taking the deep structural similarities from one domain of expertise and applying them to another like if we take those structural similarities of the career and the context to the problem solving context of the presentation that's the label i think that fits the meta lesson i'll have to learn more about that that sounds great it's a great book what you say the title was again range by David okay. Epstein. It's on Audible if you like audiobooks. Happy to send it to you for free. It is now a, a tab and Chrome. It'll never go away. What would you tell someone, Ken, that they should really think about before they decide to pursue the path to staff and principal engineer? Well, 
I would speak to them about learning to grow past technical into people. And that that's hard, right? Especially if you come from technical and you're and you're on a team doing technically amazing work. And maybe that's going to be easier for some people that were more uh, people focused than technical focused. But I would say for anybody that's moving to that role, be ready more for personal development and non-technical development and or trying to figure out the right balance for you as you navigate those two spaces. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, I think we said this before the podcast, right? I think technical things are easier to move along. People are not. So you could be a paper architect that just kind of writes these little diagrams out and that's just what people do. And maybe you don't necessarily know underneath how they get done. So you might end up with some friction where it's like the, the architecture might not be right because it doesn't account for a lot of the, uh, the factors that you were, you were kind of talking about, whether it both be for the context of the company or just where the teams lower down that need to get the work on the ground, getting the work done just might not sort of align up. So you have to have some sort of knowledge there, right, to back up that architecture. Navigating that space well with people, empathy for people and technical knowledge is just really hard. It's very hard. And I'm continually trying to put in the work. I'm constantly trying to do better myself at it. And I think that's the, that's the first thing they should realize, right? For some, it probably means having lots of meetings. Uh, I've been successful at keeping my calendar well blocked off. You know, for some, that just means you're not really going to code anymore. I, I think try to be honest with yourself where you want to go. Uh, I think Will Larson's book was, uh, uh, he wrote the Staff Engineer books. It's a very great book. Uh, our principal group at, uh, at Custom Inc. has read through it and, and discussed it a lot. And it really helps you understand that uh, how you want to be successful in that role. And, and I'll, I'll give you an example here. For the longest time, I was really the only principal engineer at Custom Inc. So a lot of people said, uh, how do I be like Ken? And I, and I can't tell you how horrible of an idea that is. Because I remember at one point when I was progressing in my career and somebody you know that was my manager said, well, if you could be more like this person. And I just shriveled up inside. I was like, that just, it just hurt me on so many levels that somebody was asking me to be uh, like something else. You know, they were pulling me down in places rather than building me up on the things that I was good at is what I felt. So I say, do the research, look at how the role operates for different peoples, for different companies and how you can be successful in that role and, and pick one and, and tack to it, involve it and be different. Uh, but, you know, do you want to be the right hand? Do you want to be technical? Do you want to be uh, more the architect? What percentage of, uh, of technical knowledge versus sort of high level architectural do you want? And find a persona, find an archetype and pick it out and, and start tacking towards it. I was going to um, say that you called out something which was very interesting, which is the different archetypes or, or modalities of being a principal engineer or a staff engineer. And uh, very few of them are that like a uh, senior, senior, super senior, extreme senior, right? They, they tend to go along with, you know, force multiplication with depth and breadth context uh, at multiple levels the kind of root, you know, getting things done level, but also at the the strategic level, like what the VPs and the the C levels are thinking about and in, in their strategy, um, or you know, productivity. That idea that people just want to like climb up, and up is the only direction that you can go, and up means one thing is this kind of fallacy that that people seem to, to fall into. 
it reminds me what you said, John, reminds me of how we've talked to people who progressed into a more or less technical type role. A lot of times shedding our technical chops as technologists can make us scared or nervous about taking on the new thing or feeling like we've lost the identity. Maybe a lot of people don't realize that the technical part is sort of a a band of technical, to use a John White term. It can be technical in bands, just like you can dream in bands, within the staff and principal engineer role. And I guess maybe that's something that I hadn't thought a lot about before this conversation. You know, I think it describes, uh, you know, there's tech lead, architect, you know, solver and right hand. Tech lead within your organization usually is within a team, right? So like, it's how do you uh, successfully take a team of people? But as organizations grow, they naturally need glue between different units that aren't really talking together uh, that might need product and or technical. There's always an area where you can add value as a principal engineer in an org and just knowing where to go and navigate. Like one of the things I love doing in my role is, you know, within the commercial organization is gluing together marketing, say merchandising and sales. I'm a conversion junkie at the end of the day. Helping those people uh, be excellent is just always fun for me because you can watch the output so easily. It's a simple metric, right? Some number is going to go up. Sales. <laughs> Sit back and watch. I've just really enjoyed this conversation. It's It's been super thought-provoking in in so many levels. Can you maybe close out by telling us a little bit about this advocacy that you've been involved in? It It feels a little bit like an extension of community involvement, but I'd really love to to hear kind of the context of how you got into it. I believe what we're talking about is the uh, the AWS uh, Heroes. It is a group of sort of segmented into sometimes like compute, like uh, serverless heroes, or container heroes, there's uh, data heroes, there are, uh, or at least there were IoT heroes. AWS is huge and there's lots of ways to sort of like do many things and they have this really amazing program where they recognize people that are doing amazing work within certain areas of their business. And it's an amazing thing. I've never really thought about like, you know, as working from a company that doesn't really run external recognition or do developer relations, I will say that it's a, it's amazing that a company the size of Amazon does so well at talking to people and reaching the community. And somehow they found me. How I became a hero, I don't know. I got an email one time that it's not something you apply for. It's not something you really know about. I just knew that there was this group of people. And then one one day I just got an email that said, hey, did you want to be a hero? And I almost deleted it. I thought it was spam. What we basically do, uh, again, there's different ways to be a hero. There's different levels of engagement with the community. Uh, much like a principal or a staff engineer, there's no one way uh, to do it. There's, there's some heroes that are just community heroes that are really good at bringing people together and doing uh, amazing things like this podcast or our user groups and things. So for me, that uh, the particular focus is on Lambda and compute. I do a lot of uh, Ruby and Rails stuff and, and I help people get inside, you know, their applications inside of uh, AWS Lambda, which is this amazing technology that allows people to not really focus on building compute up. It just gets the, the role done. So there's a, a website called uh, Lamby.cloud, L-A-M-B-Y. And that's where I have, uh, I've created this sort of open source organizational unit that takes all the technologies that helps Rails and Lambda get together and 
whether you're working at a big company like Custom Inc. and you have Rails applications that are taking an immense amount of traffic and you don't want to worry about maybe the overhead of Kubernetes or other compute systems, I let you sort of get your Rails application into those things that give you this amazing auto-scaling and horizontal compute infrastructure. It's also good for SaaS startups, right? Like if you're just building a really quick bootstrap business and you want kind of like sort of a Heroku style platform as a service, it allows you to build that out. And I find that incredibly fascinating. Uh, So I I did all this work. I continue it. Uh, I work with AWS uh, at a sort of product level. I may have mentioned earlier in the podcast, I was just out in Seattle, Washington, literally yesterday, just got back and spent about three days out there with them just learning about what's going to happen at reInvent, what sort of technology they're working on, how their product teams are going to solve particular things, which again is that sort of principal engineer thing, right? Like it's almost like I am embedded with the product teams at AWS. And that's just, just a, it's an awesome gift. It's, it, it's, it's amazing to be able to, to talk with a lot of other heroes that are just high operators in their fields that I can bounce ideas off of. Uh, and then of course, AWS is just amazingly customer obsessed, right? So anytime I talk, they, they listen. And I think that's amazing. And we've got ideas for how to push their product forward and, and I've seen it happen, right? Some of the coolest things I use at AWS were actually recommended by her- other heroes. And that is so cool. I like the fact that you commented on the transferability of the principal engineer, staff engineer mindset and operational mode to being a part of the AWS Hero Summit. I think that's really cool. And in my mind, far transfer again, in a way. But one thing I wanted to ask about, Ken, which we didn't really discuss a lot, is the main difference between these high-level individual contributors like staff engineers, principal engineers, and someone who is a people manager or people leader. Can you comment on any of the notable differences there just so people understand? As a principal engineer, I do not have any direct reports. That means nobody comes to me and asks me for a raise, and I don't have regular one-on-ones with people that, that basically report to me in an organizational chart. I don't know how different this is, but I've, I think that's pretty common uh, for high level individual contributors. I think that's cool. And it's also something that you know has to constantly be course corrected and fine tuned, right? Because organizationally, I'm adjacent to engineering managers and people that do have direct reports. I also am at a leadership level within the company to where uh, the groups that we operate in do have a lot of direct reports. So I lack line of sight sometimes into people management unless I've purposely pull on that. But it's also nice because that sort of frees up the technical aspect, you know, if I so choose in my particular role. But I think that's what you're kind of getting at. Nick is like, a like, I definitely don't have any direct reports. And there are some principal engineers I've, I've seen on Twitter that do have direct reports. But uh, I think it's, it's, uh, it's a way for you to be an influence on the organization or, or the communities that you're in without having to really be responsible for people. And that's, that's great and bad at the same time. Did your earlier experience managing different teams uh, at previous companies influence at all the decision whether to stay individual contributor or go into people leadership later? That's a good uh, question because I don't think I really felt the visceral sort of like uh, having people report to me at other places, right? Like where, like I said, at, at Stratum, I was very new in my career. I was a lot younger with a lot less sort of emotional intelligence which means I really didn't really think of accomplishing and helping people grow. I just thought about, you know, getting the projects done, you know, and execution. So 
it didn't really feed into like, oh my gosh, you know, this people management thing is something that I'm, I'm not really comfortable with. I really want to go back to the individual contributor. I think I just naturally stayed at that sort of technical level a lot. Uh, and I've been afforded the opportunity to, to, to be me in that aspect. I don't think it's been intentional. Would you rule out management at some point in your career? Or do you feel like, I really love the individual contributor life? That's a hard question. I, I, I eventually think it would be possibly needed. But then I'd, again, I'd like to, I don't know, right? Like, I think that's just going to be one of those things where where I just kind of look at the outside influences and have to figure it out. I appreciate that. Have you found like otherwise where like, I mean, I feel like the natural tendency is you have to have people report to you, right? Like that's, that feels like the natural tendency. Well, we've interviewed people who have gone individual contributor, manager, back again, Seen back that. again the other way. So there's this stereotypical idea that if I become a manager tomorrow, then I have to pursue that forever. And that's one of the myths we're trying to bust on the show. It doesn't have to be that way forever. It could be an option for a time. It could be an option forever, or it could be an option for never. Well, I can definitely say at Custom Inc., 30 to 40% of our principal engineers used to be managers. Interesting. I think it's cool that there's a path for people who don't necessarily want to manage a team, but still want to be able to have and have the skills to have the impact on the technical culture that they would have if they were in charge of a, a six or eight person team or, you know, one level up 18 to you know 24 people, maybe the same impact radius that you would have at, you know, if you're a director, you know, maybe at the principal level, your, your peers are, are directors. And then Maybe if you're a distinguished or whatever, you know, the next level up is, then your peers are like, you know, senior directors or VPs. And again, just kind of requires that you have the same level of impact on the organization that you would have if you were a people leader in that level. It's just uh, because some people either A, aren't good at it or be, are better at their impact if they don't have to um, lead people or manage people. You know, if it's not the direct responsibility, if it's, you know, more of an influence responsibility, then sometimes they're just more effective that way. And I like that. I like being able to know that these areas are there for us to explore. Right, right. Do you know any of the reasons why the people who used to be managers went to principal engineer instead? And it's okay if you don't. I'm totally asking you on the spot. I would imagine that there would be a little bit of sort of growth burnout. There may also be a little bit of sort of the pandemic there and the sort of the culture and the and the connected remote aspect, right? So like, uh, I think, like I said, the natural tendency for growth is to push people to managing, right? Like, okay, you got to be a manager and stuff. And I think it's really amazing if you work in a company that recognizes that you can go from a manager back to a, uh, some sort of individual contributor, and that's amazing and celebrated. And we've certainly done that at Custom Inc., right? It's never looked down upon. So I would imagine that if it was me in that role, it would be something around like, hey, I really want to feel the impact or feel that I'm making that impact. And if I'm not able to do it with people, then maybe I can do it with uh, you know, moving larger things forward or or in different ways and stuff. So I like the way you stated that. That's a good quote to pull out of the episode. Like definitely going to do that. You guys are amazing. I've enjoyed this time together. Likewise. Yeah, this has been a great conversation. Just really appreciate your time. And uh, maybe Ken, we'll, we'll pull you back in at some point in time in the future to d 
dive deeper into into some of these areas. I would love that. And then we can kind of figure out what's happened with my schooling. (laughs) (laughs) Why why I think uh, collecting pine cones in the forest is uh, equivalent to technology awards. (laughs) Maybe they aren't so different after all. Oh, man. Yeah, we'll definitely have to have you back to to expand on that. I want to hear more. Yeah, about he's that. just laying the groundwork for it now. <laughs> yeah, Ken, thanks so much for your time, and really appreciate your joining us here on the Nerd Journey. To you both, I really appreciate it as well. Thank you. We've explored the topic of the principal title in our industry with some other guests previously, like David Babbitt, Josh Duffney, Phil Monk, Joe Chenevy, Scott Lowe, and I'm sure there are others. Ken's coming at this inside the software development or software engineer realm, but I still think it's an extremely valuable and very insightful description of what those roles are. What I heard... As a theme of that discussion, if you want to be a staff or principal engineer, or you want to be a manager of some sort, no matter what, you will have to grow past just being technical. No matter which way you go, you're going to have to build those soft skills and get better at dealing with people. Ken admits that it's actually quite difficult to do. And those roles aren't so starchy and inflexible either. It depends on the organization and how they define that role. So we need to be looking at the job descriptions, talking to people who work in that organization with maybe staff or principal engineers and how they operate, because in some cases it may require that you have direct reports. I think in most of the time it's a high-level individual contributor role from what I have seen and from guests we've spoken to. But there are different archetypes, different modalities that we could choose if we want to be a staff or principal engineer. And Will Larson's book, Staff Engineer, is a great resource, as Ken mentioned. We should be thinking about the type that we want to be, a problem solver, a right hand, an architect, or maybe a tech lead. And I think this goes back to the idea that a role can have high-level requirements and measurements, but you can adapt your style, your way of operating, your personality in order to do it different and make it look different than someone else and still be successful. I think that's the message that Ken is trying to share with us in all of this. I also heard a sense of humility come out throughout the conversation with Ken. Even though Ken has achieved principal engineer, he remains extremely humble. In everything he does. You can hear it in the conversations. It comes out even when he does tech talks with people. He tells them that this thing I did was meant to solve a specific problem within this context, and it may or may not be what you specifically need to do to solve a problem. He also tells us that he continues to learn. He continues to try to get better at the things that he's doing as a principal engineer. One of my favorite quotes from that discussion was, there's always an area where you can add value as a principal engineer. It made me think back to 
Josh Duffney's discussion of just adding value in episode 123. It's a great attitude for all of us to adapt. Did you notice how being an AWS hero actually fits the modality of a principal engineer for Ken? He gets to do some of the same sort of things with AWS that he gets to do with his own company by being a part of that program, and that's really cool. Hopefully you also heard that there is no shame moving from manager to individual contributor if that's what you need to do. Ken works at a company where that is celebrated. Maybe you tried it out and you found out you don't enjoy it like you thought you would, or you can make a bigger and better contribution by not doing that. There's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't make you a bad person, but recognizing that maybe it's not for you or you're not as great at it as you hoped is something that you'll have to come to terms with. If you need examples of people who have gone from management back to individual contributor roles, one of the best examples I can think of that comes to mind quickly is episode 202 with Yvette Edwards. She kind of did a boomerang from individual contributor to manager, back to individual contributor, back up to management again, and then into higher levels of management. So what do you think, listener? Are you ready to pursue the staff engineer or principal engineer path? If you are... There's growth to be had for all of us, no matter what comes next. Just a reminder, we'd like people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter, at NerdJourney. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White, at BJourneyman, for Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore, signing off. Adios.